You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent on the political fallout from the Dallas cop shootings. David McNeil in Tokyo on the less-than-exciting Japanese election that has, however, given Prime Minister Shinzo Abe a supermajority and a chance to amend the country's peace constitution. And we return to London again to Dennis Staunton to discuss the elevation of Theresa May to Prime Minister and the extraordinary disintegration of her rival's challenge. First, the US. It was bound to happen sooner rather than later. The blame for not only the deaths of policemen in Dallas, but for the police shooting of African-American young men, and indeed for racial tension in the US, had to be laid at the door of the black community. And when, and when you say black lives matter, that's inherently racist. Well, I think there are... Black lives matter, white lives matter, Asian lives matter, Hispanic lives matter. That's anti-American and it's racist. Of course black lives matter, and they matter greatly. But when you focus in on 1% of less than 1% of the murder that's going on in America, and you make it a national thing, and all of you in the media make it much bigger than the black kid who's getting killed in Chicago every 14 hours, you create a disproportion. The police understand it, and it puts a target on their back. Every cop in America will tell you that if you ask him. That uh, is Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of of, uh, New York. Not a very helpful intervention. Uh, And it's perhaps surprising that that, uh, it wasn't Donald Trump, but but, uh, Giuliani, um, who, as the New York Times put it, uh, argued that the problem is black gangs, murderers, black children, the refusal of black protesters to look at the mirror and see their their racist selves there. Black parents failing to teach their children respect for the police. Um, Why is the black community not interested in in black-on-black violence, he asks. Simon, how has Giuliani's speech gone down? Um, Not very well. Um, The feeling of the Black Black Lives Matter movement, the movement that sprung up in protest at the fatal police shootings of young black men, they've come out and said Giuliani doesn't really get it. Their point and the point of the phrase Black Lives Matter is not uh, a counter to uh, it's not all lives matter. It's that black lives are undervalued. Um, And as interestingly, former House Speaker uh, Newt Gingrich put it, he said normal white Americans do do not understand being black in America. And I think that's the flip, the reverse of what the Black Lives Matter Matter people are saying is that they are undervalued, and this is what this movement is about, is about um, equality, is about recognising that black people are treated differently in American society. And uh, Rudy Giuliani's comments aren't helpful in trying to understand what their message is and in getting their message out. And he's speaking very much to a um, section of the community which basically doesn't trust uh, black people, regards them as sort of interlopers in American society. He's talked about uh, Black Lives Matter as a war on cops. It's very much not so. Absolutely. And it was interesting that overnight, uh, Harvard had put out, yesterday Harvard put out a report showing that um, blacks were much more likely to be stopped and searched in New York City, which he was the city of which he was formerly mayor, uh, were much more likely to be treated with force um, by police on the streets of New York, or much more likely to be handcuffed, even though they weren't arrested. So these are all stats which show that there are major racial disparities in how police 
deal with the black community and also major racial disparities in the criminal justice system. So that really contradicts the point uh, that he's making. It contradicts the point that um, his his opposition and and his uh, what he's saying about the Black Lives Matter movement. And we're in the middle, of course, of a presidential election. And very significantly, Donald Trump, who you might have expected to parrot the sort of stuff that Giuliani's coming out with, has been much more cautious. On Friday morning, he expressed dismay about the killings of two black men by the police in Louisiana and Minnesota and the assassination of the five police officers by a sniper in Dallas. It's time for our hostility against our police and against all members of law enforcement to end and end immediately, right now. At the same time, the tragic deaths in Louisiana and Minnesota make clear that the work must be done to ensure, and a lot of work, that Americans feel that their safety is protected. Have to do it. I am the law and order candidate. Yes, well, now we're into general election mode and things are different. But it is interesting that he has obviously been persuaded by his his advisers that it would not be good to inflame the situation worse. And that he, he, he in the in the general election, as opposed to the primaries, he, he now has to reach out to a different section of the community. Absolutely. And this is, this is Donald Trump talking to a general election audience. He realises he's having to pivot from the very far right position on some issues that he's taken uh, into the centre if he has any chance of of winning the general election. He won 14 million votes in the primary. He needs 65 million votes in the general election to have any chance of beating Hillary Clinton, something of that order. So he's having to moderate his language. And we saw we have seen a much more measured, much more careful Donald Trump uh, coming out in, in the last few days. And he's tried to present himself uh, as this uh, as this candidate who can fix America. You know, he talks about the ongoing catastrophe of crime. He's tried to tie the recent violence into the terrible poverty that exists um, uh, and that is in uh, the terrible poverty that many Americans are living in. So he's trying to say it's not just um, it's not just a law and order issue. It's also an economic inequality issue. Um, and also he he's uh, he, he he's made the point that uh, he's trying to uh, really fan the, the flames of anger at the Obama administration in line with his outsider campaign saying that racial tensions uh, have gotten worse, not better. And that's irked Obama somewhat, um, having to come out and saying, this is not 1968. He's saying it's not as America is not as divided as some people have suggested. He didn't mention Trump's name, but he was clearly talking about him. So th- this is this is a Trump pivot uh, in the hope that he can generate more support in the back of these uh, in the back of these atrocities. The question is, of course, are people going to be convinced? Are they going to uh, just forget what, what he's been saying in the last few months and and, and take on board the new, uh, more moderate, uh, almost democratic Trump? Uh, I think it's going to be a struggle for many people. There was a very interesting poll that came out yesterday, Quinnipiac University up in Connecticut, which does a lot of very good polling. They came out and said that a majority of Americans believe that the U.S. presidential race has increased hatred and tensions and that the majority of those people who say that uh, believe that Trump is the cause of that. So I think you're going to find it very difficult. He's going to find it very difficult to, uh, to appeal to a much broader audience and a more moderate audience with these kind of comments. Now, we're we talk, talking about in America as a, as a 
not just politically, but socially, racially divided society. And there are fears of a hot summer of, of, of violence, possibly. Uh, police uh, have killed some 566 people in 2016 alone. And there's a lot of communities where this is very, very raw. Uh, there is a lot of rawness there. Um, certainly the figures show that there is, it's disproportionately directed at African-Americans, for example, of those uh, of those people who are killed in fatal police shootings. Um, um, about a quarter of them uh, were black, uh, and that's disproportionately larger than the population. African-Americans make up about 13% of the population. So all of this is adding to tensions. Uh, you have the Republican National Convention on next week in Cleveland, um, Cleveland police have had to revise their plans in the aftermath of the killing of these police officers in Dallas. And Ohio is an open carry state, which complicates things further. So people can openly carry firearms like they could carry them in Texas. So there's really a lot of uh, difficult times, difficult weeks ahead this summer. And uh, despite what happened in Dallas, uh, Black Lives Matters or uh, protesters are still taking to the streets and in some cases in, in violent circumstances, as we saw in Baton Rouge over the weekend and in Minnesota. So this really is a very uh, heated time um, and a very violent summer in the United States. And of course, for for Obama himself, who this afternoon is is speaking in, uh, in uh, Dallas, uh, trying to comfort the families of, of the bereaved, uh, something that he has traditionally done extremely well. But this must be a double blow. This is real a real failure of, of his own administration uh, to make serious inroads into the divisions, uh, racial divisions in American society. It's a black mark on, on his legacy. Well, it is. And he's really had to walk a tightrope here. You know, he's having to condemn the practices uh, police practice that show there are racial racial disparities. There is racial discrimination shown against African-Americans in American society. And at the same time, in the aftermath of uh, the, the shootings in Dallas, he said to come out and defend the police uh, in the hard and dangerous work that they do and defend them in, in instances like this. Now, he's been accused of making things worse by speaking out at police shootings, by making reference to these racial disparities, by throwing out statistics. It was it, last Friday was a very good example of just the very difficult job that Obama has in juggling this issue. He was speaking at the NATO summit at one at one point, giving uh, speaking out about the racial discrimination in the aftermath of the killings of of um, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando uh, Castile in Saint Paul, Minnesota, and then less than twelve hours later, he, he was having to make remarks um, defending police in the aftermath of this horrific uh, these horrific killings in Dallas. So it's a, it's been a very difficult issue for him, and I can see why he's very quick to tamp down any issue, any uh, concerns raised by Donald Trump that racial divisions have gotten worse. The last thing he wants is racial issues to be uh, another of his uh, legacy on which there's unfinished business. You know, he's going to be leaving the White House with gun control not fixed, with immigration not fixed, with American troops still in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now in a third country in Syria. And he's got a dysfunctional Supreme Court. He can't even fill the ninth seat on that. So he's leaving a very big entry to the next president. And I think on the racial issues in particular, this is a president who campaigned on the fact that there were that there were no red states and no blue states, just the United States. And the last week has shown that there are serious racial tensions, serious tensions generally in American society that he's been unable to fix. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe 
in iTunes or Stitcher. In Warsaw at the weekend, NATO summit leaders from the US and Europe were strengthening their defences against uh, Russia. In Japan, at the same time, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was winning a substantial renewed mandate with which he hopes to revise a pacifist constitution that has been in place since the US occupiers created it in 1947. Regionally, there are tensions in the South China Sea, with China flexing its muscles, and North Korea testing missiles. These are saber-rattling times globally. David McNeil in Tokyo. Shinzo Abe is an old-fashioned nationalist, and what he's been talking about in terms of the, of the constitutional review is not new policy. But he wasn't exactly shouting about it from the rooftops during the election. No. Uh, in fact, his opponents would say that he did precisely the opposite, that he avoided discussing it uh, where possible unless he was directly questioned. And it certainly wasn't part, a major part of the LDP manifesto and uh, its coalition partner, Komito, didn't put constitutional change or anything to do with the Constitution uh, in its manifesto at all. And I think that was a political calculation because uh, the LDP knows, and Komito, of course, know that this is an unpopular uh, topic, an unpopular issue. Most uh, opinion polls show that the Japanese uh, public is quite happy with Article 9 of the Constitution, the pacifist. Uh, article of the Constitution that they uh, believe that it has kept Japan out of wars for 70 years. And that's a real political problem for a nationalist like Shinzo Abe, who uh, has made it his lifetime work to revise that Constitution. So they kept quiet about it, uh, and uh, only really on election night and actually uh, in the last couple of days has the Prime Minister been saying, well, he actually said that it's his duty now, he considers duty, it's long-standing LDP policy to revise the constitution, and then he considers it a duty to tackle this issue. Now, it's quite a complicated process, in fact. Uh, it has to go through both houses of, of parliament and then to another referendum. So that 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 is quite an, up, an uphill task for Abe, who doesn't have the votes himself to do it. Indeed. I mean, you know, the bar was set quite high when the um, allies, when the Americans wrote the Constitution, they said that uh, to change the Constitution, you must have two, a two-thirds majority in both the upper house and the lower house, and then you must put any changes before uh, the public in a referendum, which you must get a majority. And uh, one of the reasons why the Constitution has not been touched in 70 years is because the bar is set so high. Uh, and then, as you suggested, the LDP faces an additional problem because it hasn't been able to secure the two-thirds itself. Uh, what it has is a sort of very rough coalition of parties that want to change the constitution. Uh, Komito, its ally, is a Buddhist-backed, uh, ostensibly pacifist party, uh, which uh, is very wary because it is backed by something like 8 million Buddhists in Japan. is very wary about sort of stomping into this with both feet, uh, even if they are sort of shackled to the LDP. Uh, Osaka Ishin and then the Japanese Kokoro are the other two parties but even with those four, uh, Abe needs something like two or three independents. So there's a lot of horse trading to get to the point where they have two-thirds in both houses. And then they have to put it to the public and get a majority. There's no quorum, but a lot of the public, as we've just said, are opposed to changing. So the bar is still set quite high here. And indeed, last year, when Abe pushed through legislation giving military powers to fight in foreign conflicts for the first time, 
since the Second World War, the move set off enormous protests. Yeah, I and mean, some of the biggest protests, in fact, since the 1960s. Um, at one point, the, the Diet, the Japanese parliament, was surrounded by people, and those protests went on for a very long time. And I, mean, I think that there was a lesson there as well for, for Abe, because you know, what, he, what he found is that people are, do not share uh, his political obsession with the, with the Constitution. What they do want is jobs and, and uh, proper attention to welfare, particularly social welfare, as it, as it appeals to the elderly. And that's really what he was talking about most of the time before the election, about the need for the, for the public to support his, uh, his economic creed, abenomics, uh, the need for them to give him more time. Uh, and uh, and what the, the sort of interesting political conundrum for him now, I suppose, is how much time should he devote to the economy and when, at what point, should he really dive back into the constitutional issue. And for the, for the, um, for the time being, it looks like the economy has taken priority. But we have to say that this decision today by the World Court, you know, by the Permanent Court of Arbitration, to say there's no legal basis for China to claim historical rights in the South China Sea, that's the kind of thing that, depending on the outcome of that, whatever the response from China is, that's the kind of thing that could, that could push the public in Japan uh, in a different direction. Yes, and of course, I mean, it is the international uh, preoccupation with the Japanese election is, is around uh, this, this issue. Uh, I come back to Ibenomics, but, but what does the Constitution actually say and what does Abe want to do with it? Well, I mean, as you know, the Constitution was, was written while the country was under occupation, by, mainly by the Americans, by the Allied powers. And the article that gets all the attention is Article 9, which uh, prohibits Japan from ever waging war. Uh, and you have to say, you know, the nationalists have a point when they uh, say, well, look, you know, this, this no longer matches reality. Uh, you know, we have a standing army, we have a, a very large air force, very large navy, very powerful navy, uh, an army in Japan. Uh, but nationalists uh, uh, despise the constitution, not just Article 9, because they feel that it neutered, it neutered the country, it neutered its ability to properly defend itself. And the entire constitution, you know, without getting into it in too much detail, uh, is, uh, is being targeted, long been targeted by the national swing of the LDP because, for example, it enshrines Western rights, you know, Western rights uh, 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 to Japanese people. And uh, in many uh, cases, nationalists believe that those Western concepts don't fit with traditional Japanese ideas of culture and so on. And, you know, one of the more eye-catching proposals they have, for example, is to bring the emperor back into a position of relative authority and power uh, that would reverse some of the American uh, reforms which made him into essentially a symbol. Um, so there's very, very sweeping proposals to change this constitution, uh, but as we have said, it, it will be very difficult for them to achieve that. And, and one of the first things I understand that Abe might do is, is change the rules uh, on, on how the constitution is changed. Exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, they've tried, it's been 60 years since the LDP was formed. They've tried many different ways to do this. Uh, and uh, one of the things that they might try to do, for example, there's been a lot of talk in the press in the last couple of days, is to bring in some kind of emergency powers act or to, uh, to uh, um, introduce emergency powers in situations such as, for example, a contingency with China, also with natural disasters. And some constitutional experts have said, well, that would give the prime minister uh, very, very strong powers because he could bypass parliament 
and uh, some constitutional experts, not, not particularly radical constitutional experts, have said it sounds dictatorial to be able to do that. What are Japan's neighbours saying about this? The Chinese, I gather, are quite exercised. Well, the Chinese, of course, have been saying for years, you know, they don't like Abe, they have criticised him, and uh, their, their response to his, uh, to his victory was to say, well, we hope that he will not do some of the things that he has promised uh, in his political career. And, the, you know, what the Chinese like to do, of course, with their own public is to revive the specter of Chinese, of, sorry, I should say Japanese militarism. Uh, you know, Japan, of course, invaded China uh, in the 1930s, uh, uh, destroyed much of the eastern half of the country, the eastern part of the country. And that um, memory is revived quite often in the Chinese popular media and, and by the government. And that's the kind of buttons that they're pushing at the moment. And are the Koreans sharing that perspective? Well, the Koreans are a slightly more complicated thing, aren't they? Because the Koreans supposedly or um, ostensibly are allies of uh, the Japanese, you know, the Americans, for example, which you have to say are, uh, are pushing a lot of these changes, uh, would prefer if Japan and Korea were cooperating much more closely, uh, not just in relation to North Korea, but also in relation to China. And the, the sort of, if you like, the, the knee-jerk response in Korea to a lot of these changes is to be wary of any attempt by the Japanese to militarize because they feel that it would upset the balance of power in this region, but uh, uh, it's complicated by this need for uh, the two sides to sort of come together and collaborate. And if I just return briefly to Abenomics, which many see as the reason why um, Abe was re-elected, uh, this is a mixed bag, isn't it? That the, the, There isn't really a substantial growth. There's a little growth in the Japanese economy, and there's, a, there's an increase in jobs which are mainly part-time or contract jobs. But But he seems to be getting support for it. Well, he's getting support for his competence on the economy, which is something that the LDP has always enjoyed. And partly the reason why they enjoy it is because they're supported by uh, the, the largest newspaper uh, and the, most of the media in Japan. Uh, you know, it is a mixed bag. At best, it's a mixed bag, I think, because the economy has uh, stuttered along for the last uh, three or four years since Abe has taken power. Uh, the main goal of the uh, coalition, which is to defeat deflation, uh, the deflation that has sort of sapped the strength of the economy for the last two decades, looks nowhere set to being won. I mean, they set a target of 2% inflation, and uh, they have, they're nowhere near hitting that. And the main result of the last four years appears to have been to flood the economy with, uh, with money, with easy money from the Bank of Japan. Uh, and, of course, we also have, and we're about to have, a series, uh, another of these uh, uh, huge fiscal spending packages. You know, Japan, in many ways, although the government has a reputation for being right-wing, uh, its, its economic policies, interestingly, are quite liberal, quite left-wing even. You know, they're Keynesian. They're, they're all about uh, spending, government spending, to try and make sure that everything ticks over. And in a, in a world of uncertainty, you know, in a world where people... Are, are losing their jobs, uh, where people are worried about the future and so on. Um, I, I think people appreciate the stability that the LDP offers, even if, it, it, um, even if the costs are to be paid further down the road. Thank you very much, David. That's great. You're listening to the Irish Times. The Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin said, there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. In British politics, it appears that decades are happening within days. 
Dennis, in the end, you have to admire the Tories' efficiency. No question of what, what someone has called doing a Corbyn, of prolonging the agony or even leaving matters to ordinary members. Uh, in the old days, the men in dark suits huddled in their clubs to pick one of uh, their kind to lead the party. This time, there's been a meltdown of the anti-establishment right, which has left only Theresa May standing. Yes, it's been a remarkable sequence of events. If you think about it, two weeks ago, uh, if we were talking two weeks ago, as indeed we probably were uh, today, Boris Johnson was the favourite. Uh, he was the front runner to uh, become the next uh, prime minister. And of course, within days, he was gone, uh, uh, destroyed by his uh, erstwhile ally, uh, Michael Gove, who himself went down in the flames of his own treachery. And uh, finally, there were two, uh, and that was uh, Home Secretary Theresa May, and the energy minister, Andrea Leadsom, who was the standard bearer for the pro-Brexit uh, caucus uh, within the Conservative Party or for some of them. And then she just uh, self-immolated really over the weekend when she gave a very ill-judged interview to The Times where she suggested that uh, she was in some ways better qualified to be prime minister because unlike Theresa May, she had children and as such she had a real stake in the future. And then when this uh, caused a storm of controversy, uh, Andrea Letson first of all claimed that she hadn't really said that, and then the Times produced a transcript, and then they produced an audio uh, sound of the um, of the actual interview. And so that was kind of um, you know, the beginning of the end for her, really, because she found then that she wasn't really able to cope with the level of scrutiny that you get at this level in British politics. And so she uh, withdrew from the race uh, very suddenly and unexpectedly on uh, on Monday morning, uh, saying that she had concluded that because uh, she had only got the support of 25% of Conservative MPs, that it was really better for the uh, the party to unite around a single candidate. Because that was all true last week, as well as being true this week. Anyway, she's gone, and so uh, Theresa May is moving into Number Ten Downing Street tomorrow. Well, it has been said that the Tories, unlike Labour, are hungry for power and maybe they're serious about politics in a way that Labour isn't. I think that's true. It's also true, of course, though, that they weren't just choosing a party leader. They were choosing a prime minister. And there is no question but that the uncertainty that has followed the referendum and this idea that you were going to have to wait until the 9th of September before you knew the shape of the government that was going to start the uh, the Brexit negotiations was really creating big problems. Uh, and you saw immediately as soon as this, uh, uh, as Theresa May was uh, anointed yesterday, the, the pound rose and the, uh, uh, the stock market also rose. And so the markets are obviously pleased at the idea that that something uh, a bit more solid is about to happen. And because part of the problem was, of course, that David Cameron really wasn't in a position to make any important decisions with regard to the uh, negotiations with Europe. So now there is at least going to be a prime minister. She'll have a new cabinet in place uh, probably by the end of this week. And uh, and then uh, she's got the uh, unenviable task of trying to pick up the pieces from a referendum where she had uh, she had backed the sides that wanted to stay in the European Union, but now she's got to uh, she's got to lead the negotiations to get Britain out. It's not just uncertainty, though. I think the markets are are anxious, are quite pleased that May rather than Leadsom uh, has been elected. And and who is Theresa May? She's not exactly a Thatcher Mark II, more like a, th- a, th- a throwback to pre-Thatcher One Nation Tories. Yes, she's a funny mix because she certainly is a, a one-nation Tory. She was one of the original modernizers uh, of the Tory party. 
And she famously told a Conservative Party conference some years ago that a lot of people outside the party in the country thought of the Conservatives as the nasty party and that they needed to broaden their base and broaden their appeal. And yesterday morning, before she discovered that she was actually on a fast track to become prime minister, she gave a speech which was uh, really like something that could have been uh, delivered by the former Labour leader, Ed Miliband. In fact, it had some of his ideas. So, for example, she was suggesting there ought to be worker representatives on company boards. And uh, she was talking about uh, introducing some kind of system which would effectively cap the pay of chief executives in companies and of directors there. And so she's, uh, she's certainly positioning herself as a one-nation conservative. She's been mostly liberal on social issues. She backed same-sex marriage, for example. But uh, on the other hand, she's very, very much within the law and order tradition of the Conservative Party. And as Home Secretary, she was very tough. She was uncompromising on issues like, for example, giving the security services greater surveillance powers. And there's uh, a bill going through Parliament now which uh, would uh, strengthen those surveillance powers further. And also tough on immigration. And so she clashed with George Osborne, the Chancellor, quite a lot over that because she was trying to keep the number of immigrants down. And uh, and what this meant was that uh, it was having an economic impact uh, on uh, various colleges, universities, and on some businesses, which uh, George Osborne uh, opposed. So she's not one of those kind of economic liberals uh, or freewheeling liberals uh, in the Conservative Party. And she is this mixture of something quite tough and authoritarian on the one hand, and yet uh, a, a fairly expansive one nation Tory at the same time. And of course, uh, one of the interesting things about that speech that she, she gave in Birmingham is that she delivered it and she talked about these ideas like worker representation on the boards of companies before she knew she was going to be unopposed. And one wonders just if uh, now that she has got herself elevated into, into Downing Street, whether she would be so committed to, to what were uh, electioneering uh, demands. But tell me now how you think she will create a cabinet. How, how forgiving uh, will she be? Um, is there a place for Boris? And, and what about her Brexit negotiator? Well, I think she has to be uh, reasonably forgiving in that you have to consider that the Conservatives have a very, very small majority in Parliament a majority of 12. And so if, uh, uh, you know, if there's a big block of disaffected Brexiteers lurking on the back benches, watching every step of these negotiations, which will inevitably involve some kind of compromise from the purest form of Brexit that many of the ultras in the Conservative Party would like. So she needs to bring in uh, quite a lot of the, uh, the Brexit camp into the cabinet. And certainly she can't be seen, I think, to punish some of the leading figures in it. So I would have thought that those members of, uh, of the cabinet who backed Brexit, probably uh, they would be likely to stay there in some, uh, you know, perhaps not in the, their current positions, but say someone like Michael Gove, who she's never got on with at all. He may or may not remain as Justice Secretary, but I think it would be uh, it would be very difficult to imagine her actually getting rid of him out of the cabinet. She could offer Boris Johnson uh, a position. It might not be a very exalted one. I mean, people have spoken of uh, that he might be offered the, the post of culture secretary, which is respectable, but it's not exactly a great office of state. 
And then she probably does have to have uh, a Brexit here uh, running the negotiations. She said she's going to set up a separate government department uh, devoted to Brexit. And uh, the, the man that people talk about as being uh, the most likely person to lead that, or one of those most likely, is Chris Grayling, the leader of the House, who uh, was her campaign manager, but he was also a Brexiteer. Uh, he's also been talked about as perhaps uh, her successor in the Home Office. But I think that you will find that there will be somebody, uh, th that the person who will be doing the negotiations will be somebody who did campaign for Britain to leave the European Union. I mean, she will be aware that uh, uh, she's going to be judged constantly by uh, not the majority of her parliamentary party, but the, the minority of Brexiters uh, on, on her performance in, in terms of, of, of the demands she makes of, of the European Union and aware that uh, there is huge potential there still for a split. The, the, the revolution, if you like, was the easy bit. Um, the negotiations are we tend to think of as an aftermath, but there's huge potential there. For, for a split. Do we yet have any clearer sense of her position on the talks? She said that uh, she would, uh, she has, she's spoken about wishing to preserve, uh, obviously, ever, you know, Britain's economic well-being and to have uh, a good economic relationship with the European Union. She hasn't explicitly said she wants to remain part of the European uh, single market. Uh, but she's also said that uh, Brexit means Brexit, and she said that uh, free movement of people cannot continue in its current form. That's an interesting formulation because most of the other candidates for the Conservative leadership said free movement of people is off the table, it's over, it's gone, forget about it. And this, is the, the, you know, the, this in a way, is the kernel of the, uh, the Brexit negotiations. How do you maintain maximum access to Europe's single market and at the same time regain maximum control over immigration? And squaring that circle is going to be difficult. The, uh, you know, the, 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 probably the best option economically for Britain would be something like the Norway option, where they're part of the European economic area and as such are part of the European single market. But that obviously does entail not only uh, uh, you know, following the EU rules and accepting these rules that are just sent to you famously in Norway by fax, uh, and also paying into the EU budget, but it also means the uh, commitment to uh, the free movement of people. So that in its uh, Norwegian form is something that is politically impossible, I think, for Britain to accept. Now, there is some talk about a kind of a compromise. Now, whether this is available or not from the European partners is another matter. But one potential compromise, which might satisfy Theresa May's uh, formulation, would be that you perhaps have access to the single market or are members of the single market and, uh, and agree to free movement, but with some kind of a system where there is a safeguard mechanism that uh, that kicks in once the, you reach a certain limit. So perhaps perhaps you could say, if EU migration hits more than say a hundred thousand people in a year, then uh, Britain would be allowed by its European partners to uh, uh, to introduce some kind of safeguard mechanism to limit it. Now this is complicated. It's difficult politically also for uh, other countries in Europe, particularly the countries of uh, Central and Eastern Europe. But as you know, uh, all kinds of strange, complicated and unpalatable compromises uh, can happen in the European Union. So that might be one. But I think uh, and I think in a way uh, there is an advantage to the fact that we didn't have to go through this uh, leadership contest because in an eight or nine week uh, leadership contest, it is likely that the two candidates would start a kind of a bidding war in terms of the negotiating mandate, which would limit her room for manoeuvre even further than it is. So, so I think that she probably will uh, 
you know, try to check out the lie of the land with the European partners, first of all, and then see, uh, you know, what kind of shape of compromise might be available. She has said that she doesn't want to uh, invoke Article 50 of the EU treaty, which would start two years of formal talks. She's not, she's not in any hurry to do that. And she suggested that she won't do it before the end of this year. But uh, the leaders of France and Germany, for example, have said, you know, they accept that David Cameron can't uh, trigger this, but that they did expect his successor as soon as that person arrived in office to get going on it. There is no European summit for another couple of months, so uh, at least the pressure will be a little bit off until then. Can I just ask you very finally and very very briefly about the very first job she will do when she, she moves into Downing Street uh, tomorrow? She has to write a thing called a letter of last resort. What's that? It's a letter which is sent to the uh, four uh, nuclear submarines, uh, the Trident submarines, which patrol the North Atlantic. There's one of them on duty at all times, somewhere in the North Atlantic. Hardly anybody knows where it is, and some of the, the crew within them don't actually know where it is either. But this letter uh, tells the commander. It's sealed in, uh, in, in a safe, which is inside a second safe. And that letter, uh, what, it, what it tells them is what to do in the event that the political leadership of Britain has either been killed or incapacitated in some way, and that once the, the commander of the uh, submarine that's on duty is there, uh, you know, establishes that this has happened, uh, that this person will then open the letter. And uh, Theresa May has four options in terms of what the nuclear submarine ought to do. Either uh, to retaliate with nuclear weapons without prejudice, not to retaliate at all, to allow the commander to act within his own discretion, or to place the boat under the control of an allied navy, specifically the Royal Australian Navy or the United States Navy. And so she has to choose one of those. Uh, normally what happens is that a prime minister has just come in from the elation of winning a general election and then is brought into a room and handed this thing where he's got, uh, he or she has to write the letter. And Tony Blair apparently went quite white on being told of what his options are. And so she's going to have to, uh, tomorrow, when she goes into Downing Street, uh, she'll have to choose one of these options, write it in the letter, in four letters, which will be sealed and sent to these submarines. The current letter, which is written by David Cameron, will be burned, and her letters will be placed in these various safes. A sobering prospect. Listen, thank you very much, Dennis. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, David McNeil, Sun Carswell, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.